Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. You can join me in opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and that song really pictures much of what we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark uh, together in these uh, months through the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is the Lord's anointed, and we are called to hail Him as the Lord's anointed, and we see that His reign has begun, and hope and love and joy are springing forth in front of Him wherever He goes in His ministry, and now He's poured out His Holy Spirit on us. And so what he did in his ministry then is not just something merely in the past, nor something we merely hope for in the future with the renewal of all things, but uh, the Lord Jesus is risen and reigning and working through his Holy Spirit today. And through his word, even as we gather right now, we are gathering here with expectancy that we're not just doing something at kind of a merely human level, reading the Bible, listening, going on with our day. We believe the Lord radically transforms our lives through the act that we're going to be doing here uh, and have been as we've been praying in light of and reading and singing his word. So let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you uh, desperate for you to do the things that you can do. We cannot do anything of lasting change in our own strength. Uh, We're completely dependent on you. And we're eager and hopeful that you would use this time to do the things that only you can do, uh, to work in our hearts, to change our thinking and our feeling and our motives and our wills, that we live transformed lives. Uh, we pray that you do this for your glory, that you'd transform us into the image of Jesus so that we would live more like him by the Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Mark chapter 7 uh, this morning, and we're calling this series in the Gospel of Mark the way of Jesus, because Mark shows us that the life of discipleship, the life of following Jesus, is following the way of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Mark. Discipleship is learning from Jesus to become like Jesus. So Mark shows us who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow in his path and in his way. And in our text this morning, we'll see that he brought a kingdom that values diversity and dignity. Jesus' kingdom includes people who are different from one another, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different life stages, and so forth, and he welcomes these different people and treats them with respect. And so, you know, the Christian movement that Jesus launched has created a global revolution of diversity and dignity. It's true that Christians have not always valued these, and we can think of many examples. In some places and times, they've been against diversity and dignity, shamefully. But whenever that happens, what we need and what they need is more Christianity, not less, more of the real thing that Jesus brought. We need more of Jesus because the Christian movement that Jesus launched Uh, launched the values of diversity and dignity into the world. Historically, the gospel of Jesus is what created a revolution in dignity and diversity. So think about diversity. The Greco-Roman world that the Christian movement was launched from within, the Greco-Roman world was filled with racial and cultural divides. Uh, But today, Christianity is the largest multi-ethnic movement ever and on the planet Right? There are roughly similar numbers of Christians from 
North America, South America, Africa, Europe. It's growing in China. Christianity spread among the wealthiest and the poorest communities and even brought together people that would have been separated in different cultures across various divides. And think about dignity. Many people today, both religious and secular, uh, believe in values like universal human rights, care for the vulnerable, justice for the oppressed. But most today in our culture don't realize that these are distinctively Christian values. So Tom Holland is a historian uh, who is not yet a Christian, and he wrote a fascinating book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Fascinating read. So he's not yet a Christian, but he's showing just historically how our modern sensibilities of equality came from a very specific worldview. And it was a Christian worldview. And he traces the development of this uh, historically. So the roots of this revolution are right here in the text we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 7. This shows how Jesus brought countercultural diversity and dignity. It shows us that Jesus came for every people group and to solve every human problem. And in the end, the crowds will see what Jesus has done. And they say with this poetic phrase, he's done all things well. So let's read this together. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. If you're using a Bible um, under a seat nearby, by the way, that's page 843. If you don't have one, please, please do grab one. And from there he arose, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened, and his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, in this text we see two stories. We see a desperate woman and a deaf man. And they show us that Jesus is bringing this countercultural movement of diversity and dignity. So we'll walk through both stories and then think through some implications for us today. So the first story, the desperate woman here, 
Jesus went with his disciples to the region of Tyre, so this is largely a Gentile, non-Jewish area, modern-day Lebanon. And verse 24 says this, he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. So he probably wanted to hide to avoid controversy with the Jewish leaders. So the Jewish leaders already wanted to kill him. And he, if you were here last week, we saw in the first half of chapter 7, he just called them out in very strong terms uh, for their hypocrisy. So Jesus will give himself up of his own accord to be arrested and crucified. But he does it on his own time and of his own accord. And until that time comes, he avoids uh, controversy that would lead to that. And so he's pulling back here and away from the crowds, but the people from this area have already heard about him. And so a woman came to him with a desperate concern. And this is verses 25 to 26. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, so a demon, heard of him and came down and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now notice that Mark draws attention to her background, specifically listing a number of things here. She's a Gentile woman. Mark adds that she's a Syrophoenician by birth, so she's not Jewish. She's actually from the historic enemies of Israel. She's also living in Tyre, which was saturated with uh, pagan religion, and her daughter has an unclean spirit, a demon. So Mark's adding these to show that this woman has layers in her life that lead her to be viewed as an outsider in many ways, and a Jewish rabbi like Jesus would not have been around her, uh, but Jewish is, Jesus is not a typical Jewish rabbi. So she's in an unclean area, area, saturated with an unclean religion. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. She's the kind of people, person that the leaders would reject, but Jesus' love always overturns our expectations. And so here he is. You know, Matthew, when he tells the story, he adds a, a few other details that Mark doesn't include, and he even says that Jesus' disciples were saying, send her away. And Jesus doesn't. He listens to her. He talks to her. And the conversation, though, is surprising. Jesus actually sounds somewhat offensive to us. Look at verse 27. So she's desperate for help, and Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That sounds pretty offensive at first. He puts Israel in the category of children. He puts her in the category of dogs. He's using a different language to refer to different ethnicities here, and it doesn't sound positive for her. So what do we make of this? Well, last year there was a video that went viral on TikTok about this very text. It was made by a theologically uh, liberal and progressive author and pastor, and here's what he said about this text. And I'm just going to quote the entire video here, and let's not too quickly reject this, um, or we can reject it, but let's not too quickly react, uh, because let's listen to this carefully, because this represents a view that many find compelling. It went viral not because everyone thought it was ludicrous, but because many found it compelling. And it's really important to just be listening in our culture today because as our culture moves increasingly post-Christian and even anti-Christian, uh, there'll be some attempts to just reject real Christianity outright. There'll be other attempts for people to still claim to follow Jesus, but actually start revising what the Bible actually says, um, who Jesus was. So this is 
um, an example of this, but let's listen to it. He said this, do you know that there's a part of the gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur? In Mark chapter 7, here there's an account of the Syrophoenician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which were strong biases against, or had strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter, who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus' response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. And then this is what this pastor uh, says in conclusion here. He says, her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to the woman's daughter. And then he goes on to say, I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth. Now, that is radically different than a historic Christian understanding of who Jesus is um, and this text. So, here's the question we should be asking in light of this. Is Jesus, and this is an important question, is Jesus prejudicial and sinning by using a racial slur here? Does he need to repent of his ethnocentrism and change his mind here? And is that what happens here? Well, let's read it again. Verse 27, he says to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So a couple of observations here. First, Jesus is giving her a parable, and she gets it. He's using a parable with typical household imagery. He says there's an order. The children are fed first, and then the dogs. Even the word he uses for dogs, by the way, there's a couple different words um, in Greek that Mark could have used to refer to dogs. And some were street dogs, some, you know, viewed as kind of unclean, and then others were household dogs. So he's using this word for household dog as part of this uh, household imagery. And he's saying there's an order. The children are fed first. And then the dogs are fed. So Mark said that Jesus constantly spoke to people in parables. Remember this in chapter 4? He said he didn't speak without a parable. He's always giving parables. And the purpose was to test people to see who would understand it. It was separating people. Those who didn't understand were on the outside. Those who did were on the inside. And they were, this was a, a demonstration of God himself revealing to people the mysteries of the kingdom giving them understanding, counting them as on the inside. So where is she? Well, he gives her this parable, and she gets it, which shows that she's on the inside, which is actually somewhat striking um, that in this section of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is actually challenging his disciples quite a bit, questioning, are you even on the inside? I mean, we'll see this in the next few stories. Are, are you understanding, or is your heart hardened? And here this woman gets this parable, and she's commended. Do you notice she didn't reject the parable? She agreed with it, and she went with it. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table 
eat the children's crumbs. And so Jesus affirms her faith, and he heals her daughter instantly. And first, uh, this is a parable then as she gets it. So second, the parable, what's it about? Well, it's about the temporal priority of Jews in the ministry of Jesus. That word first is uh, very important. So do you notice that he said here that the Jews uh, or the children receive the bread first and then the dogs. So Jesus is drawing attention to the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles in terms of priority in time with the mission. He says children are fed first, then the dogs. So the Jews receive first. So Jesus is not saying that he came only for the Jews. He's not saying to her, I did not come for Gentiles. He's not saying, I only came for the Jewish people. He's saying, I came for the Jewish people first. He's saying there's an order to the Jew first and then the Gentile, and it's, and it's not yet time for the Gentiles. This fits with the whole storyline of the Bible. It fits with the, what the prophet said would happen when the Messiah would come. So here's the story of the Bible in short that Jesus enters into. The Bible starts with a global view of humanity. The Bible doesn't start with just the people of Israel. It's all creation, Adam and Eve, all humanity, all humanity made in God's image and then corrupted by sin. And then God promises that through the line of Eve, through the line of woman, a Savior will come who will crush the head of Satan, signaling that God will restore blessings to humanity. And then we find out, okay, how is the blessing going to come to all of humanity, all peoples? Well, it's going to happen through a particular line, the people of Abraham, the people of Israel. So God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that through Abraham, his people, which will become the people of Israel, God will bless them and then they will become a blessing to the rest of the nations. He will bless the nations through Abraham's line. But the people of Israel failed in their calling. They failed to obey God. They failed to be a light to the nations. And so God sent them in exile out of the land. And then he spoke promises through the prophets. The prophet Isaiah said that one would come who's called the servant, and he would be the true Israel. He would do what Israel failed to do. He would do it correctly. He'd obey the Father. He would have a mission. And his mission was very specific. He would restore Israel first, and then light would send, be sent out to the nations. So here's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 49, verse 6, which you can write that down. It's one of the most important verses for understanding what's going on in the New Testament. Uh, Paul quotes it. It's all over the New Testament. Um, here's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 49, 6, one of the most important verses. God the Father speaks, saying that the servant will restore Israel. And then he adds this, speaking to this servant to come, who we know is Jesus. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So it's too light a thing just to restore Israel. What else then? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So there's a, there's a movement. Israel restored and then a light to the nations. And Jesus came as the servant to fulfill this calling. Uh, he references it many times. He quotes from Isaiah, referring to himself. And so Jesus came as the true servant to do this, to restore Israel first and then send the gospel out to the Gentiles. And this is why he prioritized the Jewish people in his ministry. It wasn't arbitrary that Jesus showed up among the Jewish people as if he could have just shown up among anyone. 
This was a specific vocation that he had, that he was fulfilling. He was fulfilling a plan. And so he focused on Israel in his ministry. And then after his resurrection, what's the first thing he did? He called the disciples together and he said, it's time to go get the nations. Go bring them in. Because Israel's being restored and then the gospel goes to the nations, that's actually what happens in the book of Acts. You see on the, the day of Pentecost, thousands of people converted. But who are they? They're people from other nations, but they're Jewish people from other nations. Israel's being restored. And then it goes a step beyond that to include people from Samaria. And then it goes to the ends of the earth because that's the pattern. And Paul, even when he went places, he, he would always say, I'm going to the Jew first, then the Gentile. Right? This, is, this is why he did that. There's a priority here. So this is all through the Bible, and this is what Jesus is saying to the woman in the parable. He's saying that he's focusing on the Jewish people right now. It's not yet time for the gospel to spread to the Gentiles. But what's interesting here is that Jesus himself never even fully excluded the Gentiles from his ministry. At various times, he's commending the faith of Gentiles, even because it's a striking difference from the lack of faith among the people of Israel in many situations. Some is, uh, Gentiles started to follow him. He went into Gentile areas. I mean, what's he doing in a Gentile area even here? Next, he'll go to another Gentile area. He'll have another miraculous feeding in the next story in chapter 8, and this one's going to include many Gentiles. So Jesus is prioritizing Israel, but he's also letting Gentiles trickle in ahead of time. And again, remember, Jesus' disciples, according to Matthew's telling of the story where he adds a few more details, they wanted Jesus to send this woman away, and he didn't. And this woman gets it. She hears the parable, she understands it, and she affirms that the gospel is for the Jew first. But then she also says, but Gentiles don't always need to wait, do they? Right? Aren't there even crumbs at the table so that while the children are eating, that some, some Gentiles can eat as well? A, a master of the house can feed the children first, but the pet dogs are sitting there eating crumbs. They don't have to wait. And Jesus responds by affirming and commending her faith and instantly healing her daughter. What do we make of that response, by the way? Jesus' response. Well, if Jesus is repenting of his narrow-minded racism, then we would expect his response to be something like, I didn't think about that. I only care about Jews, but I repent. I'll heal your daughter, and I'll start caring about Gentiles as well now. I think that's entirely unlikely given the whole sweep of the Old Testament and Jesus' own posture toward Gentiles before and after this situation in his ministry. So this seems instead to be a nod of approval. Jesus is saying, well done. I mean, even a more theologically liberal Mark scholar, um, I was reading this week, he even says that the most likely interpretation of this story right here is that Jesus is giving a nod of approval. In other words, she got it right. She's saying exactly what he would hope that she would say. He, he's saying that Jesus was testing her, and she passed the test, which is why there's an immediate nod of approval. Well done. You got it. Your daughter's healed. Go your way. In the 1500s, the reformer Martin Luther loved this story. Here's how he reflected on it. You say, the woman responds, that I'm a dog. Let it be. I will gladly be a dog. Now give me the consideration that you give a dog. Thus she catches Christ with his own words, and he's happy to be caught. So she catches Christ the Lord in his own words, and with that wins not only the right of a dog, but also that of the children. In other words, Jesus is happy to be caught um, he, because she, he's, he's welcoming her really as a child. She's being treated as a child here. 
Uh, Before we move on, look at her faith. She's an example to us. She came to Jesus with boldness, with persistence. She fell down at his feet with complete dependence. She's trusting Jesus to do what she knows he alone can do, just heal her daughter. When Jesus puts this parable to her, she, a Gentile, affirms that she's an unlikely candidate for help in this moment. She knows she doesn't have anything going for her. She knows she has nothing to offer Jesus except her desperate need. And so she brings that to him. And there's nothing transactional about this. She's coming to Jesus bringing her whole self and her need. She's the kind of person everyone would have expected Jesus to reject, and Jesus doesn't. He receives her and he heals her daughter. So maybe some of you need to hear this. You may have nothing going for you physically or spiritually or morally or intellectually. Uh, You just know that you feel desperate and Jesus alone can help you. And so the only thing you have to offer Jesus in this situation is your need. You've got, you've got nothing to say, well, I did this, so maybe you'll do this for me. Well, you're the, in the exact right spot. In fact, that's the only spot you can be to receive Jesus' help. He just wants us to bring our need to him. Empty hands of faith. And he receives and commends that because that's what faith is. So look to this woman as an example for every one of us with this persistent, bold dependence. It doesn't mean that Jesus will give you what you need or want right away, but he'll hear you. And in the end, in the resurrection, he'll heal everything. Let's move to the second story. So we're moving now from the desperate woman to a deaf man. Um, I love this next story. And I was really tempted to just split this sermon up and just do a sermon on the last one and this on the next one. But we'll just be somewhat brief here. Maybe we'll come back to it someday. Jesus went to another Gentile area called the Decapolis. His priority is the Jewish people at that time. But he's not totally neglecting the Gentiles, as we just saw. His kingdom will be diverse. And so some people bring to Jesus a man who is deaf and mute. And they beg Jesus to heal him. And Jesus does. But notice the way that he heals this man. Just love, there's so many stories. By the way, in a culture that uh, only sometimes values productivity, perfect health, we see Jesus constantly drawn to the disabled and caring for them. And so this is one of the many stories. And notice the way, the particular way that Jesus heals this man. He's not just kind of an inconvenience to Jesus. Okay, I'll heal you and move on. No, This disabled man would have been neglected and rejected by many in that culture and ours. But Jesus treats him as an individual with dignity and respect and gentleness. So he took him aside privately from the crowd. It's interesting. He doesn't want to make a spectacle of this person. He's interested in taking care of this man, treating him as an individual. Then look at verse 33. He put his fingers into his, his ears. I take that to be the man's ears. And then after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now this is odd, and I'm not quite sure why he does all of this, but have you noticed that Jesus doesn't just have one way of healing? And in fact, the way in which he heals people, the particular way in the moment, is often 
adapted to the particular need, sometimes the emotional need of the person that he's healing. And so he adapts the way he heals to the needs of the person. So it seems that since this man can't hear him, he takes him aside and he does a kind of sign language for him. Before he heals him, he touches the parts that need healing. He touches the ears. He touches the mouth, letting this man know what he's about to do for him. He puts his fingers in and out of the ears to show that he's going to open those ears. He touches the tongue because he'll heal his speech, and then he sighs, which probably shows this profound emotional empathy and sympathy for the man, and then he heals him. So do you see the dignity that he shows this man? Mark is subtly also showing us something deeper about what's happening. So remember, when we read, when we read Mark, there's always a couple levels of reading. There's the reading on the surface, which you get the main point of the story, um, usually not too mysterious. And then the second level of reading is often deeper because Mark is very often subtly alluding to the Old Testament and especially the book of Isaiah. And so that's what he's doing here as well. So Mark says this man is deaf and he has a speech impediment. And both of those exact words are used also in Isaiah 35. In fact, the word Mark uses here for speech impediment is only used in one other place in the Bible, in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the only other place it's used other than here is Isaiah 35. So what's going on in Isaiah 35? Well, it's in some ways the conclusion of the first half of the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 35, God promised that there will be a great renewal at the end of the age. Uh, streams will flow, the land will flourish, and in particular, God will redeem His people in, in a greater and new exodus redemption, so not just slavery from Egypt this time, but slavery from sin and, and death. He'll renew creation, He'll heal bodies, everything will be made new. And here's what Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 says will happen at that time. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You know, Jesus essentially quotes this exact text in another place, explaining to John the Baptist about his ministry and what he came to do. Isaiah said that the worldwide renewal of all things that will come at the end of the age, it will come in the end. God will save his people, heal his people, he'll forgive them, his kingdom would come. And Mark is showing us that this end time renewal has begun. And it's spreading in the ministry of Jesus. All his people will be healed. This time that we're looking forward to has broken into the present. Deaf will hear, mute will speak, the paralyzed will leap like a deer. So what Jesus is doing in his ministry is he's showing that the power of God's kingdom is breaking into the present world. The new creation to come is breaking into the midst of the old creation. And he's spreading the blessings of this new creation. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is what it looks like. He's bringing this kingdom, but he's bringing it through, ultimately, his own sacrificial suffering. Do you notice that sigh that Jesus made? I think it's some kind of emotional expression and connection with the man. Um, but it's interesting. Remember, Mark is showing that Isaiah 35 is being fulfilled. And listen to what Isaiah says in the next few verses in Isaiah 35. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, pretty sure that the other references of the deaf and the mute, those words that Mark is using are drawing on Isaiah 35. I'm not so sure about this, but it is striking that right in that context, 
you see that one of the ways that Isaiah speaks of this renewal happening is that sighing and sorrow will flee away. And then Jesus, as he's doing actions that show he's fulfilling Isaiah 35, he himself sighs as he does it. I wonder if, you know, this man knows what it's like to sigh under the the burden of living in this broken age, and many of you do as well. With the sighs and the sorrows of this age, especially being disabled and being with someone who's disabled and just feeling the weight of this creation. And many of you know this very well. I do. My brother who passed away a couple years ago, profoundly disabled through his life, feeling, I know what it's like to feel the sigh of living in the midst of this old creation. And here Jesus is. He comes to this man, he takes him aside, and he sighs. There's, there's something going on here in the ministry of Jesus where he's taking our sorrows, he's taking our diseases, he's taking our sicknesses, ultimately taking our sins upon himself in the cross, and he's taking our sighs. Right? On the cross, he took our death so that we wouldn't die. He took our hell so that we don't have to go there. And he took our sighs upon himself so that one day he can bring this full world of flourishing where there's no more sighing for all who trust him. Giving this man his joy back by sighing on his way to the cross. So how did everyone respond? Verse 37, they said he has done all things well. Isn't that amazing? That's Jesus. He has done all things well. So in these two stories we see the diversity and the dignity of Christ's kingdom. He launched his ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And now he's showing it here. This kingdom has broken into the world. It's come first for the Jewish people and then launched into the Gentile world and has spread to us today. Jesus' ministry, we see how he treated people who came to him. He came for every kind of person with every kind of problem. His kingdom's a place for diversity. It's a place for dignity. So those two values, diversity and dignity, are deeply Christian values because they come from Jesus. They, and these were not values in the first century like, like we may think of them today. In the Greco-Roman world in the first century, it was only freedmen who would have had the most value and dignity. The people in these stories, the woman that came to Jesus, her daughter that had the unclean spirit, this disabled man, they would not have been viewed as having the same dignity in the Jewish or the Greco-Roman world. And it was worse for disabled infants. Aristotle wrote, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. This is normal first century world. But Jesus came and he planted the seeds of a revolution of diversity and dignity. And that seed has been growing and spreading across the globe. These values are spreading as his kingdom has spread. And it's influenced many cultures. It's influenced our own culture. It's influenced the Western culture to the point that our own culture right now takes the values of diversity and dignity for granted. They're now viewed as the values of a secular and progressive movement, but they have their roots in the Christian movement and in stories like the ones we just saw right here. The roots go back to the story of this woman and her daughter and this disabled man and other stories like this. So what I want to do just in the remaining couple minutes 
is just really briefly note a few, um, just show how these texts gave rise to this revolution. So I'll note five theological pillars, we could say, um, in the Bible reflected in this text. And these theological pillars really ground the Christian vision of diversity and dignity. Um, Because we need to see this from the Bible. They're not just kind of cultures that just came out of nowhere, even though that seems to be what our culture's thinking these days. Um, So here's five theological pillars, and we can talk about these in coming weeks and other times. I'll just note them here with a couple words. So first, the image of God. The Christian doctrine of the image of God means that all people are uniquely made in God's image, and this is why everyone has dignity and value, even unlike what Aristotle said, even infants who are deformed, right? Everybody, no matter your uh, ethnic background, your age, or your physical condition, your intellectual capacities, your placement inside or outside of the womb, you have dignity. You're made in God's image. Jesus goes to these areas, this Gentile area, and receives a woman in this pagan world and heals a demon-possessed daughter, receives this disabled man, people who would have been socially outcast and not viewed as having dignity. He treats them individually with care, with respect. And we see diversity represented in these two stories, different ethnicities. We have male and female, younger and older with this woman or young daughter than this man who's disabled. So we celebrate then uh, diversity because we celebrate God's artistic care in creating everyone in his own image. The second theological pillar is the brokenness of the fall. So we're all made in God's image, and yet every single person is affected by sin's entrance into the world. So both our own sin is uh, present in our lives and also the way that we've been affected physically and intellectually and mentally. And so we see this in these examples. This woman's daughter's oppressed by a demon. This man is deaf and can't speak. Others are affected with other kinds of scars, whether physical or emotional or spiritual or intellectual. In our own context, many people are looking nice on the outside, nice houses, nice cars, but under the surface there's broken relationships, there's broken homes, there's broken bodies. Everyone shares in sin. Jesus said that it's out of the heart that our words and thoughts and actions flow that defile us and harm others, and it's universal. And so Jesus came to bring a kingdom that brings restoration. Uh, His blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as the song says. Third pillar is Christ's global mission. So we have the image of God, the brokenness of fallen humanity, and Christ's global mission. The story of the Bible is the story of God's unfolding grace through Israel to every nation. So it's global in its vision, and Jesus even here in his ministry following that order is focusing on the Jewish people, but then welcoming in Gentiles, because this is the trajectory of his ministry and mission. So the gospel is good news for every people group. This is why ethnic diversity is a beautiful and strong value for Christians. It doesn't mean that every church will look equally diverse, but the goal is to reflect the community in which a church is found. It means that churches should be eager to show open-hearted hospitality to all, Churches should be eager to celebrate the global diversity of Christ's kingdom, to partner with other brothers and sisters and churches locally and globally who do uh, look different than us. This is what drives us to pursue global missions, to take the gospel to other people groups who have not yet been reached well or thoroughly with the gospel. Fourth pillar is faith. 
Faith shows the diversity of Christ's kingdom because everyone gets in the same way. Acceptance is not contingent upon reaching a certain uh, age, being a certain gender, having a certain skin color, having a certain health for our bodies. It's contingent upon us, like this woman, acknowledging our need for grace, which means that this woman and that disabled man are equally heirs of grace with modern-day CEOs. Right? We're, we're all in this together, shoulder to shoulder, level at the cross, open and dependent receiving. And this leads to the last pillar, which is the new creation. When Jesus healed people, he was showing that the end time future new creation renewal that Isaiah said was going to come, Jesus is bringing that into the present and unleashing it and beginning to spread its goodness. And we are waiting for the future restoration of all things. He'll come again. And what he did in little pockets with people, he'll do to the whole creation. And all of his people who trust him will be raised from the dead to flourish in a new creation forever. The deaf will hear, the mute will speak. And Jesus is showing that we're on our way there. So as we look forward to the great final fulfillment of this hope, when young and old, myriad of shades of skin, everyone with various abilities or disabilities we made well, we trust Christ along the way. And we celebrate where his revolution is heading. And so... The reason is because, as all the people here in this story said, Jesus does all things well, because this is his kingdom. And so we're in God's image, therefore we treat others with dignity and respect. We're all fallen and sinful, therefore we're equally in need of grace. We're all part of Christ's mission, so we embrace his plan to include all peoples. We are in by grace through faith, and so we're on level ground in his kingdom, and we urge people to come join us through faith in Christ, and we look ahead to the new creation where he'll renew everything, and we just might say, he does all things well as we see him do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've unleashed in the world, and that we have been, we've been born into this world. We did not choose where we were born. Uh, we didn't choose so much about who we are. And so we're so grateful that we were born in a time and place where we could hear the good news of Christ. And so we pray that we together as a church would celebrate diversity and show dignity and honor and respect uh, to those who are made in your image. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.